Teach theology, all things theology. We chop it up properly without an apology. Gotta give doxology to God hollow because this is how we do it at All Things Theology. Yo, grace and peace, guys. Welcome to another episode of All Things Theology, where I'm your host, K-Dub. And today, I want to talk about Howard John Wesley and church history. I want to continue that series. But before we get into that, I just want to encourage you, if you're watching this video, like the video right now. If you're if this is your first time to the channel, I encourage you to subscribe. Stick around. I think there's some good content that I do that is unique, maybe to other channels. Uh, definitely not saying don't subscribe to them do that too <laughs> and also as well hit the notification bell for future episodes um the, down in the description there's a plethora of, of things where you can follow me on twitter where you can follow me on facebook uh take advantage of those things as well all right let's get into it you guys know how i like to do it here at all things theology i want to continue my series on church history where I provide some resources and maybe and also provide the time to correct some maybe common errors of church history. Um, I'm going to continue that with uh, Pastor or Doctor uh, Howard John Wesley. He's continuing his history his uh, his series on church history where he's going to dive into the Reformation. I've done plenty of videos on uh, on him where he you know he denies things like Jesus being the only way. He denies God knowing the future exhaustively. If you're interested in that, check out the playlist, Howard John Wesley playlist, uh, after this video, and you can get caught up on some of those issues. But let's get right into it. Um, I'm going to allow him to talk for a while to build and establish this argument. So just for a second, I'm going to just allow him to talk. And you guys know I'm going to provide some uh, answers and, and some responses to the things he says. So let's get into it. At the Great Schism in 1054, we see the first issues that led to a division within the body of Christ. That was 1054. Well, the next big split doctrinally happens in something many of us know as the Reformation. And I, I got to say something there. Just to be just to be clear, there were actually other splits that happened from 1054 to the 15, 1500s. There was many controversies and disagreements. So, um, like I said, not going to get into it fully, but if you, like I said, I'm going to offer Nick Needham's church history four volume set, and you're going to see just reading that. I mean, if you just did a quick Google search and just look at all the councils that happen and um, disagreements, I mean, that, that's something very easy and obvious to uh, kind of expose. So, uh, but yeah, definitely get that four volume set of Nick Needham's. Uh, so yeah. Or more appropriately, the Protestant Reformation. Now, this may take you back and walk in history. And allow me to tell you that my intent today is just to give you the high cliff note version. This is much more complicated and complex than I can explain in just a few moments that we have left. So allow me to give you <coughs> the high cliff note version of the Protestant Reformation. And I, I think that can be done. You know, I'll, I, I obviously will be making general statements about, you know, Protestant Reformation and, and other things like that. So but you have to be careful when doing the um you know, because you're doing a, a church history, uh, you know, series, you have to be careful also when doing that, because oftentimes when you do the generalizing, you know, um, it'll it'll cause you to, like, just reduce the Reformation or the disagreements or the agreements. Um, it's the Reformation is very compli com complicated and church history in itself is very complicated. 
And so when you reduce things or just over, you can leave a lot of important stuff out. And oftentimes, just other than just generalizing, he just, I mean, misses it. I mean, just wait, hold on. That didn't happen or no, that's, you know, and so uh, just someone who loves church history and studies church history. Like I said, I'm not a scholar and an expert by no means, but I see a common area when people try to just like generalize with church history and we'll see some of those things. We'll continue. The Protestant Reformation happens in various times in the 1500s, the 16th century. Most notably, it's marked around 1517 when Martin Luther, according to Christian tradition, nailed his 95 I mean not just Christian tradition but yeah he's right on this point like many people like nail uh <laughs> ironically enough nail the reformation around 1517 with that historic event although very clearly um there's many issues that led up to the reformation um and I think he even says that so I, I agree with him on this sense though uh you know so Yes, the Reformation is usually pinned at 1517, but but as long as we know that there were actually issues that led up to the Reformation, uh, men like Wycliffe, uh, Jan Hus, uh, so many other men that were uh, actually very influential to the Reformers, like Martin Luther, um, that, you know, paved the way, so to speak. You know, so just just keep that in mind when you're studying the Reformation. He sees to the church door. Martin Luther was a bishop in the Catholic Church, who had some doctrinal issues with Catholicism, spelt them out in what is known as 95 Theses. You can Google it and read the original document. And those were supposedly nailed to the Christian door of the church. And there well, the Roman Catholic door, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah. Many who say that was the beginning of the Reformation. Now we know with Christian history, it started much earlier and went a lot longer than just one year, but you can mark it really in the 16th century, the beginning of this movement within Catholicism to challenge some of the Catholic belief, and it was deemed the Protestant Reformation. There are many figures and leaders within the Protestant Reformation, two names you ought to be familiar with, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Those are two names that are big within the Reformation. We'll see how they show up in just a little bit. But Martin Luther, obviously the namesake of Martin Luther King Jr. And some, some yeah, that's actually true from what, I, uh, what I've uh, looked into, that Martin Luther King was actually named from Martin Luther. And so, hey, yeah, I mean, that's actually pretty cool. But I, I wish he would have <laughs> held to a lot of Martin Luther's beliefs. But nevertheless, here we go. Martin Luther and John Calvin are two of the big leaders of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation resulted. Oh, well, let me say this just for clarity's sake, uh, because I know there will be people accusing me of uh, misrepresenting him or, you know, I do for uh, never out of context sake. I do chop up just so we can get to the issues faster, because this was like a 40 minute video and. If I'm responding and listening, then it'll turn into a two hour video. So just I just want to throw that there. I just want to throw that out there. So no one accuses me of chopping his videos up and saying I didn't say it. Well, here I am saying it. And so I'll, I need to have like a document that uh, reminds me 
to do that in every video because I always forget, but let's go. In Protestantism and denominations within Christianity. What are denominations? They're doctrinally autonomous branches within Christianity. Make certain you catch this so you know what these denominations are. They are autonomous doctrinal branches within Christianity that split out of the Catholic or universal church. So whereas Catholic was trying to keep everything the same, eventually doctrine of other believers became autonomous and those autonomous doctrines became known as denominations. I, I don't know like the way he describes that. Um, I, I, I would obviously have a difference with that, but it's, you know, the Roman Catholic church, they were fighting for unity and the, the, you know, these other denominations they were fighting for kind of diversity. It's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe that as, as that, you know, uh, Luther and, and, and truth be told Luther and many of the reformers were not trying to at first escape Roman Catholicism. They were trying to reform it saying, Hey, let's go back to the scriptures. Let's go back to, uh, what many in the early church were saying. Um, so that should be uh, noted there. Um, so, yeah. So what were some of the issues that led to the Reformation? What was Martin Luther protesting? What was John Calvin against? Why was there this split? Let's walk through for the next few moments some of the doctrinal issues of the Protestant Reformation. One of the very first that was debated was an understanding of the role of the church as an intermediary between God and the people. I would actually argue this was a, obviously it was debated, um, but it was not the primary issue. Um, obviously the primary issue hinged on uh, ju what justification, um, the bondage of the will, things like that um, uh, from what Luther stated himself, um, you know, the doctrine of justification is the hinge of which the church uh, falls or stands or falls. You get the gospel of justification wrong. The church is doomed. But obviously we have it right. We stand. And so I, this was not the primary issue, uh, although, I mean, it was an issue. I'm not trying to belittle or make it reduction reductionistic. It was an issue. But we got to put the. Can't put the cart before the horse, so to speak. Um, the, you know, our relation with God was primary and, and more important and more fundamentally argued from Luther and from Calvin. And so I, I just want to, uh, I don't know, I, yeah, I want to correct that statement that it was the primary thing that the reformers were arguing for. Um, because how he explains it, I don't think the reformers would have necessarily agreed, disagreed. And I'm going to allow him to say that uh, in a second, but I don't think they would have disagreed um, with how he presents the role of the church. So let's, let's just listen here. Within the Catholic Church, there was the belief that the church itself and its leaders were literally an intermediary between God and the people, that the only way the people could get to God was through the church. So if you were not part of the Roman Catholic Church, there was no way you were in the family of God. The church stood in between, almost like the bridge. If you would think of God here, the average person here, 
And the only way for the average person to have access to God was to come through the Catholic Church. You had to believe what the Catholic Church believed. You had to practice what the Catholic Church taught. You had to obey the leaders of the Catholic Church in order to be in right relationship with God, that the church was an intermediary. So obviously there was an abuse of the view of the church and I think I believe still is from um, Roman Catholics. So but let me let me balance this out, because I believe that many people in fear of having uh, too high of a view of a church, we actually many times in Protestant circles, some, you know, some Protestant circles, especially non-reform most most of the time actually de-emphasize the importance of the local church to where, oh, I don't need a, I don't need a church. I don't, you know, uh, I don't need a someone to go before me, although that is true. We, we uh, you know, uh, we stand before God, right? Uh, one can have a relationship with God apart from any person. That is definitely true. But no Christian, biblically speaking, is called to have that relationship apart from the church. So, yes, the, although it is true, we do have that relationship with Christ uh, at individualistically. Um, it's supposed to also be communally. Um, you, you think of uh, how to live. I mean, the, the I'll, I'll say this. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian outside of the local church. It does not. Um, it assumes you are in the local church. I mean, with things like love one another uh, to obey your elders. That is a local church context. Not just it's not talking about just uh, obey people who are older than you. No, it's talking about your local pastor. Um, things like uh, do not forsake the gathering of the body. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty five. That is a local church context. Many, many of the commands are given with the assumption that you are fellowshipping locally with the body. Not I mean, in our context, we think we can just meet up with a Christian at Starbucks and we we're in the church. No, that's, you know, obviously they didn't have that then. So you have to apply the same standard that would make sense in the uh, first century church. And so, although I agree with him in a sense, we don't need a mediator between um, God and man. That's what the Bible literally says. Um, that doesn't take, that doesn't cancel out the commands of like going to church. And I, I think we do need a reformation of having a high view of the church Obviously, uh, not as high as Rome, because I believe Rome has a unbiblical high view of the church. But I'll let it continue. However, on the reformer side was the belief in a term I want you to be familiar with, the priesthood of all believers. What do you hear in that term, priesthood of all believers? The belief that every single believer in Jesus Christ could serve as their own priest. That the only intermediary between you, me, and God is Jesus. And when I confess Christ, I can do for myself what I was dependent upon my bishop to do or my father to do in the church or the church to do that the church was not an intermediary, that every born-again believer has direct access to God. Yeah, that's what they was getting at. Um, not that we kind of stand as our own priest, like in a narcissistic, like, yeah, like I'm my own pastor, or all I need is, I mean, the body The body has different functions and members, and so that, that's why I spent so much time just previously 
trying to balance that this issue out um because yeah on one hand you got people who say yeah you need the church uh you know um to stand before god which i don't don't accept that you need a mediator you know between god and that's the church that's not true but then you have all these people like well i don't need the church that that's that's not true because yes you do biblically speaking all christians need the church um we need men, women that are more wiser than us to to disciple us and things like that. And, and the Bible says to go uh, to literally to be in the church. So nevertheless, God commands every Christian to be in the church. And so that's that's one of the main things I want to do right here in this section. Balance the truth of these things. Um, you know, because, like I said, I, I do think there are errors on both sides where too high of a view of a church and too low of a view of a church over here. And so. So, yeah. And for many of you, that's why you are Protestant and not Catholic. Praise the Lord for the bishops. Hallelujah for the Pope. Thank God. Wait, what? Are you are you sure you're Protestant? (laughs) Hallelujah for the Pope, that unbiblical role in office. Hmm. That's just very interesting, uh, you know, phrase phrase that you would say um i i mean i obviously don't think he agrees with it but given that his uh view of uh you know he he denies that jesus is the only way um and i mean by jesus a true confession in the gospel is the only way then i, I don't think he would say yeah roman catholicism even though they have a different gospel they still can't be saved i don't think he would say say that i think he said yeah they can still by, be saved by living generally a good life. So that kind of lets you know kind of where he's coming from and why he would even say hallelujah to the Pope. So, yeah. The fathers and the nuns of the church. But I believe that I can get down on my knees myself and talk to God. I don't have to go in a box. Now, what ties in directly to the priesthood of all believers is another term called sola scriptura it means exactly what it sounds like sola only scriptura scripture scripture only that scripture only was what believers needed to understand god that's actually not what um scripture alone means sola scriptura scripture and and many people abuse that to you know Many truths of God have been abused because that's that's where kind of people like, well, all I need is my Bible and under the tree. And that's all, that's all I need to know. God, well, in the Bible, I mean, you read the Bible, you're going to see like God has given the church elders and deacons to to grow us. So let me define what sola scriptura means. Sola scriptura means that the Bible scripture alone is the only infallible uh, rule and practice that. That is the highest authority, right? Since we have an infallible authority and not, and it was really to combat what Rome was saying that, well, no, the scripture needs to be, uh, you need this other authority to help you know what the scripture means. Um, you know, or, or to, you know, you need an infallible interpreter, you know, so to speak. That's why we need the Pope and, you know, the, the magisterium, um, you know, and tradition. You know, the three legged prong, so to speak, or three legged stool that Rome kind of presents as authorities. And it's true that the church is an authority, that the pastor is an authority, but is not an 
infallible authority. That's where the reformers would disagree. And so um, they are authorities. They're just not infallible authorities. So, if you know, this is why, you know, if your pastor tells you one thing, but the Bible clearly says it, um, well, we go with the Bible, not not the church, not the pastor. Why? Because the Bible is infallible, not not the pastor. Um, the you know, and Rome would say things like the Pope can speak ex cathedra, dogmatically infallible. Um, you know, when he speaks in this manner, the uh, ironic thing is they don't believe that he has spoken very many times, depending on which uh, Roman Catholic you asked, that he has spoken in this manner many times. Nevertheless, I'm hopefully you get the point I'm making about um, Sola Scriptura and the difference in what he's saying and what I'm saying and what the reformers were saying. The scripture alone was the real authority, not what the Pope said, what the Bible said. Not what church council voted on, but what the Bible said. Now, hear me before the Reformation. Let me actually right now uh, recommend a source. If you would like to delve more into this topic, I was while he was just talking, I was like, yeah, I think I got a book on this. Well, <laughs> uh, by my good friend, James White, uh, Scripture Alone, he dives into a lot of these issues. And I think you will be thoroughly uh, equipped to address some of these errors and confusions if you get this book and you digest it and understand it. The Bible was only printed in one language, <clears throat> Latin. It was called the Vulgate. And guess what? If you didn't read Latin, guess what you couldn't read? The Bible. The average believer before the Reformation didn't even carry a Bible around. Listen, you get you you got a Bible in the back seat of your car right now, collecting dust. It sits there all day long. You don't read it, but it's in the back of your car because you own a Bible. But back then, believers did not own Bibles. There, there's a truth to what he's talking about, in which I think everybody, funny enough, even if you're not a ref, you're not uh, in line with the Reformation, you should actually be thankful for the Reformation. Even Catholics should be thankful for in this sense. This is why they can even know the Bible. You talk to someone, uh, you know, online who's Catholic and they seem to know the Bible. Well, the Reformation produced that because the reformers uh, held that the Bible should be uh, taught and understood to the common man. And this is where the explosion of Bibles did come from, you know, with the things like the printing press. And he got into that uh, issue here in, in his dialogue. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, the Reformation is... Uh, responsible for that they you know they believe that the bible should be known it should be understood it should be taught to them not just read in latin and you have no idea what it's talking about or speaking of so praise god for the reformation for that you know so yeah from the doctrinal issues the role of the church as an intermediary the priesthood of all believers sola scriptura the selling of indulgences and a few more and he, he got into indulgences in this video. Um, again, um, just another issue that, I mean, I didn't feel necessary to comment on too much. I mean, I think I addressed it even in the last video because I think he got into indulgences a little bit. Um, I would just say, yeah, get some, get some, uh, get Nick Needle's book and dive into some of the, uh, the Reformation. I think it's volume three, um, where he kind of gets into that, those issues as well. And, um, so yeah. It was the baptism of infants. The Catholic Church 
Now this one's gonna make a lot of my Presbyterians, uh, Presbyterian friends mad because he's gonna put you guys on the Catholic side here. Uh, so I know a lot of my, uh, <laughs> but but I mean, but to be fair to my Presbyterians, uh, you know, I'm going to defend you here for a second. So I, you guys know I'm a staunch Baptist, and if you guys would like to watch why I'm a Baptist, I did do a video. Um, you can search for it on my channel, Why I'm a Baptist. And I get my reasons. That's not my point right now. But there is a difference between uh, Rome baptism of infants and Presbyterian baptism, baptism of infants. Obviously, Rome being, uh, you know, baptism, baptismal generation. And uh, so th there's a whole plethora of issues that gets into it that Presbyterians would deny and reject as well. So I, I'm going to be fair to you guys. Can't say I never defended you. Baptizes <laughs> infants. You've seen it. You, you saw Godfather. You remember that day uh, when Tony Montana, uh, not Tony Montana, that's Scarface, <laughs> uh, when Corleone, Michael Corleone's uh, son is baptized as an infant. Catholic Church baptized infants. But there was a movement within some that say, no, an infant can't really be baptized because an infant can't confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And, and just to be fair, uh, I think baptism goes deeper than that from the baptist side it gets into the issues of like new covenant um nevertheless there's a whole history of like just infant baptism that like i said uh church history brings out things like sacralism um connection to the church and to the state so i i know he's trying to be reductionistic and just kind of give you the cliff note versions but i think those are some issues that that kind of led up even led up itself to the reformation and Boy, I mean, just so many issues. So I'm going to promote him again. Nick Needham's four-volume set will have you thoroughly equipped for some of these issues. And so that's where the Baptist church begins, with this doctrinal issue around who can be baptized. And within the Baptist movement, which comes out of the Reformation, was a belief that only someone who could confess their sins and understand what Jesus did could truly be baptized. Like I said, I, I would definitely, I believe it's deeper than that. <clears throat> um, because I would encourage you just to watch my video of uh, why I'm a Baptist and, and see those, see some of those reasonings and uh, explanations that I give. If you're interested in this issue, um, if you're on the, you're, you're straddling the line between Presbyterian and Baptist, I would encourage you to watch that video uh, and may the Lord use it which means that a six-week-old baby can't be baptized. So in a strict Baptist church, we don't baptize infants. We only baptize those who can, can understand and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, in certain Baptist churches, there's debate of how old someone can be when they do that. Some churches will say, well, someone can't really understand it till they're 12. I was raised in a tradition where it was six, so I was baptized at six. At Alfred Street, we say around five or six that you can fully understand what it means to be saved, to be a... I mean, fully understand? I mean, some adults can't fully understand, but I don't think full understanding of the gospel is needed for the gospel to impact, to change one's heart. I mean, I, as long as they can have some understanding, um, I think a three-year-old can have that heart change done. And so, um, but I mean, that gets into... Uh, practical issues uh when should you baptize a child who does believe like let's assume the baptist uh position is true just for a second 
calm down Presbyterians, Lutherans out there. <laughs> um, like, so like, when should you baptize that child? I would say yes, when they believe, but, um, you know, those are difficult issues, you know? And so, um, I, I'm not going to deal with them or solve it right now. So we're going to keep going about church history. That Christ died and resurrected. And we baptize around that age. But in Catholicism... But I'm not... Let, let me say this. I am not for baby dedications that I've seen a lot of Baptists do. I mean, you, you're just kind of doing the Presbyterian thing without holding to their theology. So I, I think that's inconsistent. And I've seen many Presbyterians like, hey, what are you doing, Baptists? And I'm like, I'm right there with them. Like, what are you doing? They still baptize six-week-old because there's the baptism of infants. That was a Reformation issue. Another issue is around soteriology. Say it with me. Soteriology. Okay? You know biology, the study of life. Theology, the study of God. Soteriology is the study around salvation. And the debate between Catholic and Protestant is this. Is salvation just a matter of faith or is it a matter of grace that's dispensed through the church? Again, is the church an intermediary? So on the Protestant side, as long as I have faith, I can be saved. On the Catholic side, I need faith and stay in the good grace of the church. So watch this. If you're Catholic, the greatest damage that can be done to you is to be excommunicated from the church and not be able to receive the Lord's Supper. Because even if you have faith, if you're excommunicated and not in good standing with the church, you're not receiving the grace that only the church can give you, which means this, you're not saved. So this was kind of one of the, the main central issue with the reformers, obviously justification. And let me just read from the Council of Trent because they anathematized uh, the doctrine of faith alone, that man is justified by faith alone apart from works. Now, many people have uh, misabused this doctrine because it does not mean that uh, we do not produce good works. Um, clearly, the reformer said that we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that's alone. Um, they, they taught that we are to produce good works. It's just those good works do not um, make us right with God. And the Bible clearly teaches that. But uh, Canon 1 concerning justification on the uh, on the Council of Trent teaches this. If anyone saith that man be justified before God by his own works, whether done through the teaching of human nature or that a law without the grace of God, uh, Jesus Christ, let him be anathematized. So they believe that the uh, the um, grace was necessary, but the issue was they didn't believe it was sufficient. Let me get down to Canon 9. Um, if anyone saith that faith alone. Sorry, let me start over. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, meaning the sinner, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to co-op cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and dis disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So they clearly, I mean, there's so much more I can get into that documents and shows how Rome historically uh, from their council, from the council of Trent uh, anathematized said it was heresy. If you believe uh, justification uh, is uh, obtained uh, by faith alone and grace alone. And so they, they clearly renounced the doctrine. And so, I mean, that's right on that point that 
this is a central issue. And yes, Rome did believe that grace is um, imposed through the church or given through the dispense through the church through the church. Um, and so that gets into other other issues It's actually going to come up in a little bit with like the veneration of saints and things like that. And you're going to hell. So one of the greatest things a Catholic believer fears is being excommunicated. Because if I'm not in good standing with the church, then I'm not saved and I'm going to hell. Whereas on the Protestant side, I am saved by grace through faith. Doesn't matter whether the deacons like me and you ain't got to serve me your communion. As long as I know that I believe in Jesus Christ and God has saved me by grace, I ain't even got to go to your church to be saved. Right? Difference between Catholic and Protestant. You ready for some big words? Let's do Here's it. Some big words. Transubstantiation versus consubstantiation. Woo wee. Let's learn some big words that cannot push it. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation is a doctrinal divide between Catholic and Protestant. Um uh, because even the reformers weren't unified in this belief, uh, because consubstantiation is the Lutheran view. You know, transubstantiation is the Roman Roman Catholic view, absolutely. Um, but even even that, I mean, there was differences with the former reformers with with this issue. Um, let, let me go through a few of them uh, because you you know you have consubstantiation, you have transubstantiation, but then you have what's reduced as the symbolic view, um, which is generally held by many Baptists. But even in that symbolic view, you have a uh, you know, with, which the symbolic view was held by uh, Swingley, which he's going to bring up here in a bit. But that's why I'm bringing it up as well. Even in that um, difference of a symbolic view, you did have uh, a view that Calvin taught. So symbolic view. But then you have symbolic view with real presence that Christ is spiritually present. And that's that's one I'm more so lean to as well, that Christ is present with his people when they take the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's it's not just reduced to symbolic, uh, view, uh, you know, eating of the although it is symbolic, but it's not just that uh, Christ is present with his people when they partake of the of the of the Lord's Supper. That's why I think it's important that we um, take it, <laughs> you know, you know, if you if you uh, I, I would encourage churches, I, I, I personally hold that it should be weekly. But OK, if you um, don't take it weekly, make sure you don't miss when it is being done. So. It, it, I think it's an important thing to think about. And so, but I just want to bring that up that they're actually more there. There are more views than even the ones I brought up. There, 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 <laughs> there's, there's a few views of the Lord's Supper, not just two. Let's just say that. So we've got the baptism of infants. We've got soteriology. We've got tran versus consubstantiation. And then there's the veneration of saints. In the Catholic Church. You can live a life so holy that you are venerated. You become a saint, which means you are someone we can pray to and have access to God through our prayer to you. So you, if you've been raised Catholic or in the Catholic Church, you know that there's certain saints over certain things. Forgive me, I'm not Catholic. I don't want to denigrate that. I'm not familiar. I'm just using an example. So I could be, I could live my life so holy. I don't like the example he gives. I, we'll play it. You know, but I want to respond to it, address it. Like, I think it's important to get people's beliefs right. And 
But nevertheless, let's go ahead. As a priest uh, that I'm venerated, and I become Howard John Wesley, the patron saint of, I'm the patron saint of basketball, because my son plays basketball. So as a Catholic, whenever you go to a basketball game and you want your son to do well, you don't pray to Jesus or to God, you pray to Howard John, the saint of basketball. So you lift up a prayer and, 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 and Howard John, we pray that you would watch over our, our daughter as she plays basketball today. Saints are venerated. They are lifted up. And, and I mean, that, that's true. Saints are venerated in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and in a second, I'm going to show you show you this, that th there there is a there's a truth to what he's saying. Um, I just don't like the example he used, but I'll let him go ahead. The highest venerated saint in the Catholic Church is who? Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Catholics will pray to Mary as much as you and I will pray in the name of Jesus Christ. He's not lying. Now, I know a lot of modern Roman Catholics will be mad, but just give me a second. I'll show you one, one example of this. But veneration of saints is the doctrine that, you know, some saints have excess merits, which they are kind of, it kind of overflows. Like, yeah, they don't need all this righteousness. So <laughs> here it is to uh, other Christians. And, you know, Roman Catholicism does not believe as Protestants, or I believe as the Bible teaches, that every Christian is a saint. Um, and so, but let me read this. <clears throat> this is from a a book called Our Mother of Perpetual Help. Um, and so, yes, right here um, by Alfonso Liguori. Probably pronounced his name wrong, but <laughs> my, my, uh, my apologies if I did. Sit back, guys, because this is going to be disturbing. Just, you know, when uh, Protestants speak of uh, the idolatrous nature of, of praying to Mary, this is, this is one of the examples. O mother of perpetual help, thou art the dispenser of all the goods which God grants to us, miserable sinners. And for this reason, he has made thee so powerful, speaking of Mary, so rich and so bountiful, that thou mayest help us in our misery. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched, and abandoned sinners who have rescue to thee, have who have re recourse to thee. Come then to my help, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to thee. In thy hands I place my eternal salvation, and to thee do I trust my soul. Count me among the most devout, devoted, devoted servants. Take me under thy protection. It is enough for me, for if thou protect me, dearest, dear mother, I fear nothing. Not from my sins, because thou wilt obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all held together, and not even from Jesus, my judge himself, because by one prayer from thee he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, in the hour of temptation, I may, I may neglect to call on thee, that's Mary, and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me then the pardon of my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace always to have recourse to thee, O mother of perpetual help. And there are many prayers like this in the Roman Catholic Church um, that I believe are just, you know, if you understand the gospel, just outright blasphemous. I mean, let's just be honest. And so he's not wrong when he talks about this. Like, man, she is the most venerated saint. I mean, where 
the one thing you fear is not going to marry over against Jesus. I mean, it could be a whole episode right here, but hopefully that helps. People can be elevated. Peter is a saint. The Pope will be venerated. And Catholics can pray to them and look to them, not as God, but as intermediaries. You know, one of the ironic things is the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man. And yeah, Rome has many, multitude, thousands. So, you know, when you deny Sola Scriptura, yeah. Well, on the Protestant side, they rejected that. They rejected any veneration of saints. People are not lifted up. The only person we pray to to have access to God that walk this earth is who? Come on with your Baptist self, Jesus. That's all we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we pray. In the name that is above all names, in the mighty, the miraculous, the marvelous, the magnificent name of Jesus Christ, we only Amen. pray in the name of Jesus. That's Protestant. Catholic saints are venerated. So as we wrap up, some of the major denominations, the doctrinally autonomous branches of Christianity that came out of the Protestant Reformation are a few. Lutherans, obviously from Martin Luther. And we'll talk a little bit about what they believe in a few weeks. John Calvin, there's a doctrinally autonomous branch called Calvinism. And Cal From what I've studied, actually Knox is more credited with John Knox, that is, with more Presbyterian theology. Calvin is kind of more rooted, like, because, I mean, I'm a Baptist, but yet I would hold to Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist. Would more be like your soteriology, your view of, of that, predestination, things like that. So... I mean, because Calvinism isn't a denomination. It's a more more of a belief on, um, like I said, salvation, soteriology. So. Calvinism is connected to our modern-day Presbyterian. So Presbyterians trace their roots back to John Calvin, Lutherans to Martin Luther. King Henry the Eighth. And, and then even in um, Lutherans, there's a split. Like, like I said, there's... There's different kinds of Lutheran, so but but I get the point. I'm not gonna harp too hard on that one. Had a falling out with the Pope because he wanted an annulment of a wedding, and the Pope wouldn't grant it. So he split off from the Catholic Church and called and formed what was called Anglicanism, which is connected to the Church of England, which on our side we know as Episcopal. So Episcopals trace their Christian roots to King Henry VIII. Then finally, there was a movement called Anabaptists. Anna means again or rebaptist. Now, a lot of, uh, like I said, like history is so more complex because Ulrich Zwingli was more of the Swiss reformers. Um, yes, he held to a Baptist position, but it, but even like I said, the Anabaptists, there was a plethora of different kinds of Anabaptists that like I said I, just just kind of being reductionistic like I mean there was heretical Anabaptists you know and believe certain things about the heretical issues and so like I said I, I uh, you guys can see my frustration and this was the movement of those
who may have been baptized as infants, as children. They were baptized as infants by the Catholic Church, but when they came of age, made their own confession and wanted to be baptized again. So they were called Anabaptists. And, uh, you know, by being Anabaptists, you know, rebaptizers, uh, oftentimes they were baptized a third time. <laughs> Only certain people would get that joke, but I'll, I'll let you think about it and ponder it. That movement was big in Sweden, uh, Switzerland, excuse me, led by Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland was a big leader in the Anabaptist movement, which of course leads to the Baptist movement. So Anna, again, reformed Catholics who had already been baptized, now becomes Baptist, those who weren't baptized as children, but only baptized upon their own confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Are you thoroughly confused yet? Yes. Well, wait, we got a whole <laughs> lot of other denominations to bring up, and I'm going to share those with you, I think, next week. But to summarize, in post-Reformation Christianity. And that's uh, the majority of it right there. Um, so, yeah, I hope you guys will check out those uh, church history sets that I get that I recommended. Nick Needham, uh, four volume set, uh, James White's book on Sola Scriptura. There's many more that I can uh, recommend probably in the comment section or or in the description. So hope you guys enjoyed this video till the next time. Grace and peace. Everybody, everybody.